All right, uh, so this is a little bonus footage we're going to have for you. Um, I'm sitting here. I've got the pleasure of sitting with Richard Allen Wagner, who um, is is a 33-degree Mason, correct? 32. 32, I'm sorry, 32-degree Mason, and is one of the people uniquely qualified to really give a historical Masonic uh, perspective on Oak Island, which we've just covered. And I thought that it was really important to, to kind of give this, it's going to be a really cool look at the symbology on Oak Island, what could possibly be there. And again, you're going to want to listen to uh, the the William Shakespeare episode I did with, with Richard on uh, Sir Francis Bacon and to, to kind of have all this stuff kind of come together. So all three interviews are going to kind of go together, fit together like a, a like a glove, I guess, uh, a well-oiled machine, cogs in the world of Sir Francis Bacon. So let's get right into this. So tell me a little bit about Oak Island from a for Sir Francis Bacon perspective. Well, again, uh, we're in some respects, we're kind of playing the cart before the horse, but uh, where Bacon comes into the picture with Oak Island is that uh, toward the end of his life, uh, when he was a part of King James government because Bacon starts off uh, as his as King James Attorney General when James comes to power in 1604 and of course James has a lot of land in the Americas and that includes uh, the territory of Nova Scotia where Oak Island is located and also Newfoundland and of course the whole eastern seaboard of the United States and uh, Oak Island, of course, is this tiny little island off the coast of uh, Nova Scotia that at one time was actually owned by Bacon. Uh, King James had deeded over parcels of land, uh, immense parcels actually, to Bacon at that time. So Bacon, at that Bacon, at least in those years, actually was the owner of Oak Island. Did he ever go there? Actually, we, there's no evidence that he did. There's no evidence he ever left England, for that matter, to go over to the New World. We don't know that he ever, ever did. There's no evidence to back that part up. But uh, what could possibly be there? Well, there's a lot of speculation that, in addition to all the treasure, the treasure of the Knights Templar, the treasure, all the other possible things that could be there, like the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Grail, whatever, that somehow uh, possibly the original manuscripts of Shakespeare could be included in that treasure. And Lord knows at one point uh, in the 20th century, when there's some digging going on with a large drill, uh, they actually came back up with a, a piece of parchment that had some writing on it. Uh, and everyone's speculating, well, gee, was that piece of parchment part of Shakespeare's lost manuscripts? We don't know. We don't know yet. We, no one else has found anything since then. Uh, but it's interesting that Bacon would write in his Advancement of Learning about using mercury to, uh, as an agent to preserve manuscripts and preserve parchment writings. And sure, sure enough, later on, we find that uh, on the island they found used flasks uh, that had once contained mercury. So we got these little elements of uh, what could be uh, uh, fragments of you know, hinting that maybe manuscripts of some sort 
in parchment may have been part of the treasure trove. We don't know for sure. But if that's true, then it could very well be that Bacon might have had something to do with it. We don't really know for sure. Nothing we can really nail down. Not like we could with uh, Shakespeare. But, it, but at any rate, uh, as far as the Masonic connection goes, again, that's, that goes to Bacon. Bacon was the founder of modern speculative masonry. When Bacon first became a mason himself, he wasn't a speculative mason. He was what's called an operative mason. And he became an operative mason when he first went over, at a very young age, over to France. And we were staying at Navarre. Uh, he became an operative mason at that point. We know that because we see his operative mason stamp on the cover of his uh, of his early uh, French edition of his Advancement of Learning. He actually did some doodling on that. And at the very bottom of it, we see the cover where he has his stamp. He had an I, what he called his IM stamp on that. And he had, under it is a square and compass. He was an operative mason. Who were the operative masons? They were an offshoot of the earlier Knights Templar. They were the ones, the, the operative masons were the ones who built the cathedrals of Europe. And so Bacon, in later years after the disbandment of the Knights Templar, certain underground shoots of the Knights Templar went on to exist uh, secretly. As, as a secret society, so to speak. And this was basically known as the Invisible College. And there were certain offshoots of that, one of which was, of course, the Operative Masons. Another one became the Rosicrucians. These are people who were very much interested in knowledge, dissemination of knowledge, and things like telescopes and lenses, alchemy, you name it, they were into it. But later on, uh, during Bacon's time, in the early 1600s, Bacon gets involved in as the first emperor of the Rosicrucians. And then a little bit after that, he then becomes the creator of speculative Freemasonry. And that's where the word Freemason first comes in. Bacon, Bacon creates that term. Bacon creates speculative Masonry, which is much different than in many respects to operative Masonry. What it does is it takes certain aspects of the of operative Masonic ritual and adopts them, but it, but it elaborates on them. So prior to Bacon, you don't have certain elements of the three, what we, we call the in Masonry, the three Blue Lodge degrees in there. Uh, they didn't exist yet. Later in speculative Masonry, you see uh, emphasis on the seven liberal arts and sciences in the second Masonic degree, for example. We see emphasis on something called the winding staircase. Bacon writes about the winding stairs in his essays, in his apothegms. Winding stairs. Notice that the term winding stairs incorporates the use of the letters W.S., which also applied then to William Shakespeare. Notice also that in a Masonic ritual with, with the Masonic degrees, especially the third degree, you have this character Hiram Abiff. Again, before Bacon, the, the character Hiram Abiff doesn't exist. Not historically, not in any way. Not even in, in masonry. Bacon invents the guy. Bacon invented Hiram Abiff just like he invented Christian Rosenkreutz for the Rosicrucians. So Hiram Abiff didn't exist before Bacon. And yet, 
uh, here you have this guy, Bacon didn't want to have a, he didn't want to be known as the creator of speculative Freemasonry. Uh, he has Hiram Abiff as the creator of speculative Freemasonry. Same he does with Christian Rosengren. Again, Bacon doesn't want to be known as the creator of, of either of these uh, mythical figures. And the reason he doesn't want to do that is he doesn't want them to become religions under themselves. He understood that was that would become a problem later on. Later on, uh, later in later years, uh, certain things would show up on Oak Island uh, that would have Masonic uh, significance. There are, for example, rows of stone that are set up on certain parts of the island that have Masonic that have significance as Masonic in terms of Masonic symbolism. For example. Uh, what's called a circumpunct or a, a circle within a, a point within a circle shows up in a rock formation. Uh, other places you have triangles of rocks that uh, in some cases you, you see uh, the triangles representing uh, the square and compass, the Masonic square and compass. In one place you have a large boulder that when turned over gives you the capital letter G. Again, this wasn't significant until Bacon created speculative Freemasonry uh, because the letter G didn't have any significance to anybody yet. But it does for Bacon because the capital letter G, or the letter G by itself, uh, in the, in the uh, K cipher adds up to the number 33. Again, that goes to Bacon. The number 33 is very important to Bacon. Bacon makes it so, and sure enough, that's, that's what the capital letter G stands for. It's true that uh, it stands for other things in Freemasonry. Most Freemasons, if you ask them what the G stands for, they'll turn around and tell you that the G stands for geometry, or it stands for God, the, the, uh, the Masonic creator of the universe. And they're, they're, they, they're right. It, it means all those things, but most importantly for Bacon, uh, the letter G adds up to 33, K cipher. And there you go. Now, again, on the on Oak Island, you've got, uh, you got, you have these things showing up. And sure enough, it gets back to all the other Freemasons. And certainly uh, very important Freemasons did get involved in excavation in later years of Oak Island. For example, Franklin Delano Roosevelt got involved, and he was a 33rd degree Freemason. Uh, other people got, Richard Byrd was another one. John Wayne was another one. Okay, A lot of people don't know John Wayne was a Mason. He was, and John Mason was one of the many people got, who got involved both in the financing of the excavation and in the excavation itself. So it's interesting. These guys would show up in later years and take an interest in this treasure hunt, this Masonic treasure hunt. Where does it all start? It actually starts, as I've alluded to, with the Knights Templar. The Knights Templar were this group of warrior monks who rose to prominence uh, during the Crusades. And they, uh, in, in addition to fighting the Saracens at that time as Crusaders, late in later years they ended up doing excavations of the Temple Mount. And what they were looking for in their excavation of it was the lost treasure of Solomon's Temple. It was believed that uh, there are many th important things, including the Ark of the Covenant, uh, in that treasure. And sure enough, uh, 
when the Romans uh, uh, first sacked the uh, the temple, they came up with some things, but there were a lot of things they didn't find. One of the reasons they didn't find it was that everything else was hidden away in underground treasure troves. And that's exactly what the Knights Templar were doing during the Crusades. They were digging for that treasure trove. And it would appear that they found something because when they came back to Paris, originally when they left as Crusaders, they had nothing. When they came back to Paris, they had an enormous amount of wealth. And no one knows exactly where that came from. If they didn't find anything under the Temple Mount, where did they get all this wealth that they then turned into even greater wealth? It's an interesting thing. Uh, interestingly enough, when the Chartres Temple or Chartres Cathedral was built uh, by the operative masons, they erected a, a special panel, which, uh, which was a bas-relief of Templar knights coming back from Jerusalem carrying, of all things, the Ark of the Covenant. To this very day, you can see that panel embedded in the, hall, in the wall of Chartres Cathedral in France. Very interesting that's there. But it gave, gave rise to this myth that the Templars, the Templar Light Knights, A, found a fabulous treasure beneath the Temple Mount, and B, part of that treasure included the Ark of the Covenant which was believed to have been part of that fabulous treasure. Over the years, the Templar Knights uh, invested in a great deal of land. They had, they had the largest landowner up until 1307 when they were disbanded. Uh, they were involved in making fa awesome loans to everyone. They were the founders of a modern banking system. They were the ones who invented the modern banking system and uh, everything that went into it. So they, they did, in fact, historically have this fabulous treasure they kept in Paris in their commandery. And interestingly enough, the year in, the, in 1306, the king of France, who was known as Philippe the Fair, he was Philip IV, actually went into the, was allowed into the Templar commandery and actually got a look at the treasure and was quite impressed with it. And he made up his mind a year earlier, that he was going to end up owning that treasure. So what he did was he turned around and he went to the Pope Clement V, who happened to be a relative of his, and he, uh, he put a bug in uh, Clement's ear to the effect of, hey, let's, let's go ahead and outlaw the Knights Templar and let's go ahead and help ourselves to that fabulous treasure they've got. And that's exactly what they did. They planned the whole thing out in secret. They planned a secret dawn raid, which turned out to be the morning of Friday the 13th, 1307. And sure enough, that's exactly where we went down. However, somehow the Knights Templar got wind of it. And sure enough, the morning of uh, October 13th, 1607, when Philippe went in to claim his prize, it wasn't there. It had been moved, removed secretly. What happened to it? Well, go figure. It was carted off, wasn't it? Guess what else was missing aside from the treasure? The Templar fleet that was moored off of La Rochelle, France. 
consisted of 18 ships. The the Knights Templar had used these ships throughout their exploits in the Holy Land during the Crusades. These ships were missing along with the treasure. Where'd they go? No one actually knows for sure. But there's good evidence that they actually ended up in the Orkney Islands, northwest of Scotland. And who was there? Who was there to greet them? None other than a man by the name of Henry Sinclair, who was the Earl of the Orkney Islands at that time. This is during the reign of Edward I, otherwise known as Edward Longshanks. And this is this is also a time when Scotland was at war with Edward, or Edward was at war with them. In later years, Edward the, Ed, uh, Robert the Bruce would then uh, turn the ties and also would win the Battle of Bannockburn with the help of the Knights Templar. But it would, it would appear that they actually did end up in the Orkney Islands initially. And over time, gradually the treasure appears probably to have gone from the Orkney Islands into what became Rosalind Chapel in Scotland. Again, that's a whole other story. But it would appear that uh, that's exactly where it ended up in underground tunnels and warrens beneath that that temp that chapel. Later on, it would also appear that it was again transferred, very possibly to the New World. Was it? Did it end up in in uh, Oak Island? Could be, because guess what happened with Henry Sinclair in the late thirteenth, uh, late fourteenth century. Henry Sinclair actually did go to the New World ahead of Columbus. And he went, so went there with Antonio Zeno, an Italian, an Italian explorer. Zeno had run his ship aground in the Orkney Islands, and Henry Sinclair uh, uh, took him under his wing. And it just so happened that the reason that Antonio Zeno was heading that way north was he was following an old Viking map he had gotten hold of. And the, and the Vikings, we have, we have a lot of evidence showing that they had actually explored the uh, New World about a thousand years prior to Columbus. And we do have, there is concrete evidence, archaeological evidence that does demonstrate that. So here you have in the 14th century, uh, nearly 100 years before Columbus, you have Henry Sinclair along with Antonio Zeno following the Zeno map, as it was called, following the shoreline around Scandinavia and following the Viking map that then took them to Newfoundland and Nova Scotia. What did they find there? Well, amongst various things, they apparently found Oak Island as well. And that's essentially the Sinclair and Knights Templar uh, connection to Oak Island. Certainly, it would appear that if an, a treasure was buried there, it very likely was the Templar treasure. Was anything else added to that later on? Possibly. There are theories about that. Again, possibly the Shakespearean manuscripts, they, the, the manuscripts could have been added to that. In addition to that, there is speculation that maybe uh, other people might have gotten involved. For example, Francis Drake may have gotten involved in the thing. Francis Drake was certainly a contemporary of Bacon's. Uh, Drake, interestingly enough, in the 
uh, late 1500s made a secret deal with Queen Elizabeth that he could work as a privateer and he could raid uh, Spanish ships. Now at that time, England was not yet at war with Spain. So England, Elizabeth couldn't openly raid Spanish ships. Uh, that would be that would be piracy during times of peace. Well, during times of war, you could do that. So during times of peace, she had to keep a very low profile on what she allowed people like Drake to do. But, but Drake actually did make a secret arrangement with her whereby he, as a privateer, would raid Spanish ships, take all their gold, and then he would split the proceeds with Elizabeth. Interestingly enough, uh, when he went on his final voyage of exploration in the late 1500s, uh, he circumnavigated the globe. It is believed he made off with about 26 tons of Spanish gold. That's a lot of gold. Wouldn't you say? 26 tons is a 26 lot 26 tons of gold. That's a lot of gold. But it could also be that uh, the speculation might be correct. The speculation to the point the, to the to the tune of uh, Drake actually using Oak Island as a repository for a lot of his gold that he didn't have to take back to England with him. He could very well have done that. The one thing I want to ask you is, you know, given given as much as you've studied the Winchester Mystery House and Sir Francis Bacon, and you know that a lot of this stuff seems to be very elaborate puzzles. The argument that I made when I was talking with uh, with Rick Lagina and David Blankenship was that Oak Island, in all in all respects, must be a large puzzle. So, yeah. w- with the pieces in place that you know of, what advice would you give them on figuring out that puzzle? Well, I I think that uh, they have probably in, in most of the people who've been there, and including a lot of Masons, prominent ones, have certainly looked the island over. So I don't know that anyone has re uncovered anything that wasn't known before. Although it doesn't mean that, that there is anything left to uncover because that's entirely possible. But does do any of the, the clues have been left behind? Uh, have they all been thoroughly have have they all been thoroughly uncovered? Have has every lead been thoroughly checked out? I don't know. I'd never been there. I don't know that they have. They probably are. If they did, they they might not let you know about it. Hmm. Did you get that impression? No, I didn't get the impression that they were hiding anything. The, the real impression that I got was that over the past, you know, 250, 300 years of of exploration and digging on the island has actually destroyed most of the clues that would probably lead you to the treasure if you had the right perspective and the right key to the cipher that probably hid everything on the island, is my guess. Drew, a lot of the uh, strong-arm archaeology, which was not archaeology, that went on there in the earlier days didn't uh, figure in too well as far as preserving everything. So you're right, there most likely is a great deal that has been destroyed and can't be replaced. Yeah. Um, Well, that's, that's, I mean, that is an incredible historical perspective on Oak Island. Um, So thank you for giving me that, uh, and I hope that anyone listening will maybe can crack the code, including you guys, Lagina Brothers. Um, Look into the Masonic connection. There might be something there. Yeah, Uh, after more than two centuries, it'd be nice to see someone find something. 
I know. Right? It would be. And I think, you know, I think that the things you mentioned that are possible on the island probably have the highest percentage of probability of being there, in my guess. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, Richard. Thank you for telling me about that. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to this little little side trip, a little bonus feature on Fascinating Nouns. Thank you for listening. Have a good night.